You're listening to the Iliadic Sappho Diaries by Mars Tarasenko. Hi, welcome back. Today's episode is going to be slightly different. Um, We're going to be reading the introduction from Anne Carson's translation of Sappho titled If Not Winter. Um, Today I feel like sitting down and reading something, um, narrating a little bit, less so analyzing poetry, which I know, who am I? Not in the mood to analyze poetry. But you know, that's part of the point of having a podcast is I can have that duality. I can have that choice of if I want to sit down and read a little bit um, versus if I want to read a little bit and then also talk about what I'm reading and then also talk about stuff that I wrote that I read out loud. So let's get into it. I feel the need to point out this bird. I have a lot of background noises right now, and again, we're still working with that wired headphone microphone, not even underneath a blanket at this point. I've given up with that. It's hard to breathe under there. (laughs) So you're going to get the full echoey room situation, Um, but hopefully my bed is going to act as a little bit of a sound dampener for that. Introduction on Sappho. Sappho was a musician. Her poetry is lyric, that is, composed to be sung to the lyre. She addresses her lyre in one of her poems, Fragment 118, and frequently mentions music, songs, and singing. Ancient vase painters depict her with her instrument. Later writers ascribe her to three musical inventions, that of the plectron, an instrument for picking the lyre, Suda, and that of pectis, a particular kind of lyre and the Mixolydian mode, an emotional mode also used by tragic poets who learned it from Sappho. All Sappho's music is lost. Sappho was also a poet. There is a 5th century Hydria in the National Museum of Athens that depicts Sappho, identified by name, reading from Papyrus. This is an ideal image, whether or not she herself was literate is unknown, but it seems likely that the words to her songs were written down during or soon after, after her lifetime and existed on papyrus rolls by the end of the 5th century BC. On papyrus roll, the text is written in columns without word division, punctuation, or lineation. To read such text is hard even when it comes to us in its entirety, and most papyri don't. Of the nine books of lyrics that Sappho is said to have composed, one poem has survived complete. All the rest are fragments. Sappho lived in the city of Mytilene on the island of Lesbos from about 630 BC. It is not known when she died. Her exile to Sicily sometime between 604 and 595 BC is mentioned in an ancient inscription, the Parian marble, but for no no reason for it is given. Biographical sources mention a mother, a father, a daughter, a husband, and three brothers of Sappho. She appears to have devoted her life to composing songs. Scholars in Alexandria collected them in nine books, of which the first book alone had 1,320 lines. Most of this is lost. Her face was engraved on the coinage of Mytilene, and Hellenistic poets call her the Tenth Muse, or the Mortal Muse. The general tenor of her ancient opinion The general tenor of ancient opinion on her work is summarized by a remark of Strabo. 
Sappho is an amazing thing, for we know in all of recorded history not one woman who can even come close to rivaling her in the grace of her poetry. Controversies about her personal ethics and the way of life have taken up a lot of people's time throughout the history of sapphic scholarship. It seems that she knew and loved women as deeply as she did music. Can we leave the matter there? As Gertrude Stein says, she ought to be a very happy woman. Now we are able to recognize a photograph. We are able to get what we want. Introduction on the text. Breaks are always and fatally reinscribed in an old cloth that must continually, interminably be undone. J. Derrida, Positions, Chicago, 1981-24. In general, the text of this translation is based on Sappho et Alceus Fragmenta, edited by Eva Maria Voigt, Amsterdam, 1971. I include all the fragments printed by Voigt, at which at least one word is legible. On occasion, I have assumed variants or conjectures from her apparatus into my translation, and these are discussed below. See notes. In translating, I try to put down all that can be read of each poem in the plainest language I could find, using where possible the same order of words and thoughts as Sappho did. I like to think that the more I stand out of the way, the more Sappho shows through. This is an amiable fantasy, transparency of self, within most translators' labor. If light appears, not ruining the eyes, as Sappho says, but strengthening, nourishing, and watering, we undo a bit of the cloth. Introduction on Marx and Lax Sappho's fragments are of two kinds, those preserved in papyrus and those derived from citation in ancient authors. When translating text read from papyri, I have used a single square bracket to give an impression of missing matter so that either bracket indicates destroyed papyrus or the presence of letters not quite legible somewhere in the line. It is not the case that every gap or illegibility is specifically indicated. This would render the page a blizzard of marks and inhibit reading. Brackets are an aesthetic gesture towards the papyrological event rather than an accurate record of it. I have not used brackets in translating passages, phrases, or words whose existence depend on citation by ancient authors, since these are intentionally incomplete. I emphasize the distinction between brackets and no brackets because it will affect your reading experience if you allow it. Brackets are exciting. Even though you're approaching Sappho in translation, that is no reason you should miss the drama of trying to read a papyrus torn in half or riddled with holes or smaller than a postage stamp. Posted brackets imply a free space of imaginable adventure. A duller load of silence surrounds the bits of Sappho cited by ancient scholarists, grammarians, metricians, etc., who want a dab of poetry to decorate some proposition of their own and so adduce exempla without context. For instance, the second century grammarian Apollonius Discolus, I cannot read today, who composed a treatise on conjunctions in which he wished to make a point about the spelling of the interrogative part of particle in different dialects of ancient Greek, cites from Sappho this verse, do I still long for my virginity? Whose virginity? It would be nice to know whether this question comes from the wedding song, and so likely an impersonation of the voice of the bride, or not, and so possible a personal remark of Sappho's. Apollonius Discolos, 
that last name's gonna get me every time. Discolus, say it with me three times fast. Discolus, Discolus, Discolus. <laughs> Apollonius Discolus is not interested in such matters or considered the third century philosopher. Oh no, that's even worse. Chrysippus, whose treatise on negative includes this negation from Sappho. Not one girl, I think, who looks in the light of the sun will ever have wisdom like this. Wisdom like what? And who is this girl? And why is Sappho praising her? Chrysippus is not concerned with anything except Sappho's sequence of negative adverbs. There is also the second century lexi lexicographer Pollux, whose lexicon includes the following entry. The word beodas, found in Sappho, is the same as the word kimberikon, which means a short, transparent dress. Who would not like to know more about this garment? But the curiosity of Pollux is strictly lexical. In translating such stranded verse, I have sometimes manipulated its spacing on the page to restore a hint of musicality or suggest syntactic motion. For example, the sentence cited by Chrysippus becomes, Not one girl, I think, who looks on the light of the sun will ever have wisdom like this. This is a license undertaken in deference to a principle that Walter Benjamin calls the intention towards language of the original. He says, the task of the translator consists in finding that intended effect upon the language into which he is translating, which produces it in the echo of the original. Unlike a work of literature, translation does not find itself in the center of the language forest, but on the outside. It calls into it without entering, aiming at that single spot where the echo is able to give, in its own language, the reverberation of the work in the alien one. I'm never quite sure how to hear Sappho's echo, but now and again, reading these old citations, there is a tingle. So far, we have looked at examples of citation without context. Still more haunting are the instances of context without citation. Some wonderful night of Sappho's life, not to say the prayer that it evoked, survives only as an illusion of the 4th century AD orator Libanese. So if nothing prevents the lesbian Sappho from praying that her night be made twice as long, let it be permitted for me too to pray something like this. Some of Sappho's some song of Sappho's that Solon heard sung by a boy is mentioned in an anecdote of Stobias, but Stobias omits to tell us what this song it was. Solon of Athens heard his nephew sing a song of Sappho's over the wine, and since he liked the song so much, he asked the boy to teach it to him. When someone asked why he said, so that I may learn it, then die. Some shrewd thinking of Sappho's about death is paraphrased by Aristotle. Sappho says to die is evil, so the gods judge, for they do not die. As acts of deterrence, these stories carry their own kind of thrill. At the inside edge where her words go missing, a sort of anti-poem that condenses everything you ever wanted her to write, but they cannot be called text of Sappho's, and so they are not included in this translation. You know, a dream of mine would be to sit down and narrate this entire book. I'm not sure if there's an audiobook. Let's figure this out together. If not, winter audiobook. There is an audiobook, but man, oh man, would I love to be the person who did the audiobook. Um, as you notice, I do make some mistakes in my readings, um, and I don't think it necessary for me to start over the entire reading for me to fix just a couple mistakes here and there. Um, but if you guys find it really annoying, maybe I'll consider splicing up the audio and like inserting me saying the word correctly. I don't, 
I don't know. I can figure something out. But um, a dream of mine would be to narrate an entire audiobook, and I know that that's definitely something that audiobook narrators do is when they do make a mistake, they go in and they like fix it later by just reading that line again and then like seamlessly incorporating it into the audio file. Um, but for right now, 20 year old me in my university bedroom <laughs> does not have the ability to do that. So if anyone would like to sponsor me to read an audiobook, would like to pay for a microphone and pay for an audio booth and pay for editing software, that would be much appreciated. But right now, dang nabbit, we we can't work with <laughs> with what we want sometimes. Um, I think I'm going to leave today's episode a shorter one where I just read the introduction from Sappho's introduction and Carson's introduction, not Sappho's introduction. Man, would I love to read an introduction by Sappho? That would be amazing. Um, So I'm just going to leave it at that. I hope you guys enjoyed and I will see you guys next time.